You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bayou Brethren had been conceived as a reality show about moonshiners, but another network snatched that idea first. Next on the concept list was pig farming, the unsavory auditions dragging on for months. Eventually, Buck Nance and his three younger brothers were chosen to star in the program, though they knew nothing about swine husbandry. They got the nod because of their exquisite beards, rough-edged banter, and punctuality. Carl Hyacin is the author of 14 novels, including the best-selling Lucky You, Nature Girl, Sick Puppy, Skinny Dip, and Star Island, and four best-selling children's books, Chomp, Flush, Hoot, Scat, and Skink. His nonfiction include The Downhill Lie, A Hacker's Return to a Ruinous Sport, and Dance of the Reptiles. His newest book is Razor Girl. Thank you for joining me, Carl. Oh, thanks for having me. You like your characters so much, this time you finally brought some back. Yeah, yeah. it was the first time I've ever brought back a, a main character from a previous novel. In this case, the Andrew Yancey, who was in Bad Monkey, and I sort of left him, I thought, uh, struggling a bit at the end, even though, you know, usually I'm good for about one book, and some, some of them I come back intermittently, but never consecutively like he did. So um, I decided uh, I wasn't finished with my thought. I thought maybe he needed another shot. Uh, he's one of the most unique uh, detective-type characters <laughs> in modern fiction. He's not exactly a policeman, though, is he? Not anymore, no. He was a good cop and detective down in the Florida Keys, where I lived for a number of years. And uh, uh, he got in some, had some personal issues and uh, some personal problems that aired publicly. And so he was uh, demoted down to um, the job of a restaurant inspector, health inspector, and uh, what, or as it's known, Roach Patrol, and he's been struggling as he did throughout Bad Monkey, and he starts off in this book struggling to get his real detective badge back, while at the same time doing this very unsavory job of going into the deepest, darkest recesses of of restaurants and you know counting cockroach wings. You know, over for the past couple months, I've discovered the joys and the delight of making and eating quinoa. <laughs> and I ruined it all for you. You did, didn't you? Oh, my God, I apologize. Um, yeah, that's early on in the book. There's a character, and he popped up in the, in the, in the paragraph that I'm reading today. But he, um, his, he goes by the name of Buck Nance, and he's the star of one of these redneck reality TV shows that have become very popular. And I can talk about rednecks because I'm from, from that neck of the woods myself. And... Uh, so he, uh, he and his brothers got really auditioned for this job, and, and uh, they were trying to create another Duck Dynasty, and the show was Bayou Brethren. And, and du- uh, Buck started to believe his own press clippings and, and give these rants uh, that were offensive to any number of minorities and uh, uh, other groups and uh, to, to, to bring forth his, his fake redneck persona. And so he was... He was mistakenly guided to Key West to do some promotion for his show, the Bio Brethren. No one, he, fe- he feels like he got some bad intel because <laughs> Key West is not the place to tell the kind of jokes that he tells, and so he ends up running for his life uh, through the streets of Key West, and he 
because his beard is his trademark, he figures the one way that he won't be identified and set upon by angry mobs is uh, if he shaves his beard. And he runs into the back of a restaurant, and he, and he shaves off his beard into a vat of, of quinoa. Uh, and, uh, and that's where the st- Andrew Yancey is then summoned, obviously, as a restaurant inspector to, f- to try to figure out what in the hell that is and where did it come from and so that's sort of the launch point is it's, it's a little more common that basically sums up the why i ruined your your appetites for quinoa <laughs> you know in this book one of the things i noticed is you write some brilliant sentences and one of the things you mentioned is that um buck is in one of these redneck TV shows, and you wrote an absolutely astonishing observation associated with those shows about the uh, uh, the one most recent political election. And I thought that was such an interesting observation. Well, part of it, and I wrote this, you know, before we had the phenomenon going on <laughs> this year that we have. I mean, the book was pretty well done, but the phenomenon is something that it's a disturbing one where you, you actually... Uh, if you preach enough and if you if you make hate and and bigotry and rage acceptable enough you you create a, a monster even if you're acting even if you're show just saying the words and it's just rhetoric and it's just show business um some people take it to heart and this is what happens to buck he runs in face to face with his really a mirror image of himself and is horrified to see that there are really people like him out there <laughs> and uh and i mean it, uh it's a tricky thing to pull off but just when you're going through the dials at night late at night and you can't sleep and you see some of the stuff that's on the air and 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 it's supposed to be quaint and cute and look at these guys you know they got the shotguns and they got the rebel flags and whatever they get you have to understand that behind all that there's somebody who who, for that it almost becomes a religious experience to be swept up in it we've seen it with the election this year we've seen things bubble to the surface that we never thought we would heard ever hear said or expressed or suggested and and um it's it's uh, it's unsettling the entire nation is becoming far too much like florida for its own (laughs) good yeah that's that is terrifying we really would rather be our own separate, you know, um, universe down there. And then people come visit and they leave and they come back and they tell everybody. And every, now, of course, everybody's got relatives down there. And they, mm-hmm. and that's how it usually starts, this uh, sinister dance. And then they move down uh, for reasons unknown. Um, but, yeah, we, we used to, I mean, we really, uh, we've seen the weirdness that has been in Florida sort of, uh, percolate elsewhere i think we're always on the cutting edge of it down there we're on the cutting edge of sleaze we're on the cutting edge of depravity we're on the, on the cutting edge of low culture and uh you know people look to florida first for what's going to go wrong with the rest of the country next wow i hadn't thought about it that way florida is our future well, I mean, you have to look at it like this. We lead the country in identity fraud. We lead it in mortgage fraud. We lead the country in um, Medicare fraud. I mean, we are the scam capital. I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i stacking us up against California, New York, uh, places where you have big populations and you have a lot of stuff going on like that. But we are a, a magnet for sort of those predators and scammers that are and, – and, we, you know, those are all categories that we consistently – you know, back in the 70s, we led the country in a number of 
dead bodies found in car trucks back when the, the drug war started, but now we've, we've elevated to the white crime capital. I, I think one of the joys of reading your books is to go through the plot, and the more outrageous something seems in your books, the more likely it is to be true. Mm-hmm. And the tamer it is, the more likely it is to be fictional. That's such an unusual inversion. It is. And it, the, you, you, I mean, you, what all writers do, whether they admit it or not, novelists, is you, if you're writing in the here and now, you're poaching a little bit from the headlines every day. I mean, you have to be affected by what you're reading and what you're seeing. And so I squirrel odd newspaper clippings and, and things people send me away. And I, think, and I always think about how am I going to fit it into, into a novel, or, or will it fit, or can I improve upon it it's in a novel? Because sometimes you get a clipping that, of something that really happened that you just go, oh, my God, this could, this could not have happened. I remember after I wrote um, the novel Strip Tease many years ago, and, and the movie came out, but I, would, I was getting a lot of stripper-related mail. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and That must have gone down. Oh, well. yeah, and clippings, and a lot of them from Florida. And I remember... There was a story that ran in the Tampa Tribune, and it's again. You read these things, and you think, I, if I put that in a novel, even me, no one would buy it, even in, in a fictional form. But I remember there was a case where um, there was a domestic dispute outside a strip club in Tampa, and uh, the boyfriend of one of the dancers pulled the gun and fired. Um, uh, the the dancer's life was saved because the bullet deflected off of her breast implant. And, and I mean, I, I guess it was the best advertisement ever for the breast implant. But this was like the headline in the Tampa Tribune. Now, if you ri- you wrote a scene, maybe the Cohen brothers could get away with that, or something. But it would be tough to pull that off. And that's the that's what you're up against in Florida. And then you take this stuff, and then you try to spin it for your own purpose, fictional purposes. And if you're writing satire, even larger purposes. You know, you're you're picking and choosing and um the, the way this razor girl starts is a, was based on an accident that really happened in the keys and a woman car full of innocent tourists on their way to key west are struck from behind nobody's hurt fortunately but the driver of the crash car is um was uh distracted because she was doing some personal grooming hence the title razor girl while she was speeding along at 60 miles an hour on U.S. Highway 1. And uh, when, the, when the cop went back there and said, Lady, what in the world are you doing? She's got the razor in the one hand. She goes, and her, her simple explanation was, well, I had a date in Key West. I was just getting ready for the date. And the, whole, the part of the story that didn't fit was that sitting next to her in the front seat of the, was her husband. <laughs> so that's a Florida story, but I so I took the premise of that accident, which in real life was was an accident. Mm-hmm. But I said, what if now? What if somebody got the idea to do this in a non-accidental way? It's just a scam, you know, a bump and run scam, which we have in Florida insurance, whatever. You know, I just kind of filed that away, and then when I I just thought, well, what the hell? I'll start a novel out like this and see where it goes. I think one of the things that <clears throat> was so fun to read in. Uh, bad monkey was the way you handled, which is where we, we first met Yancey, was the way you handled the whole, the Medicare scheme. Yeah. That was amazing. And, and it and strikes th- me, you must do a lot of research into this stuff. Well, I read, you know, because I still write my column for the Miami Herald once a week, I read a lot of newspapers in Florida and a lot of the news down there. We have, as I said, we're the Medicare capital of the of the country, and we've had some extraordinary scams. The one I invented for Bad Monkey was was not that 
far off what's something that could really happen um, or has happened. And we, ha- we have a big scam. They've arrested a bunch of people down there now who um, – who were uh, who had come over from Cuba as as refugees from Cuba and, and were accepted and they uh, and there was a small number of them and got into the Medicare fraud business and they obviously came over here just to do these weren't like the thousands of refugees that you really see they came over here with the criminal intention of fleecing Medicare and sending the money back to Cuba millions and millions of dollars. And so, and then when they, the government started figuring out what was going on, many of them got involved and went back. Um, and they're a fugitive. I mean, they're, we're trying to get them back from Cuba now to prosecute them. So it's like this reverse, you know, immigration, weird thing, but going on. But, but there are all kinds of people. Um, and I'll tell you this story. This is true because you talk about Medicare fraud. It's a little bit off the point. But in that novel, in Bad Monkey, there was a, a, a case of a, a guy who, there was a limb, an artificial, like a limb, an actual human limb was found in the beginning. The guy's reeling in, he's fishing, and he snags a severed arm. And, it, and it's meant to be like a, a boating accident. Somebody, you know, got chopped up in the propellers or something. It doesn't turn out that way. But anyway, and that everybody said, oh, that's really sick, is, you know, the way it plays out. But there were many years ago in, in a Panhandle, Florida, in that neck of the woods, and there is a town where um, people uh, started chopping off their limbs. First of all, it started with just a finger, sometimes more than a finger, sometimes a toe. They started off doing this for um, to get insurance money. <laughs> and it became an epidemic in this town. And this was going back into the 60s. And it got... It got some nickname, horrible nickname, like Stump Town or something. I'm not making this up. There's a whole clipping on that. St. Pete Times did a great story about this place. And you people would go to the town, and there would be, you know, people with partial amputations. And it became, oh, if you do that, you'll get some, you get you workers' comp, get some money. I mean, this became a thing to do. And so I never thought of how to create a whole town like that in fiction. You couldn't do it. But this existed. And nowadays they're touching on the subject. And, you know, this was their, their, the previous generation. Uh, and they don't even they don't use the nickname of the town anymore. But I'm just saying, if you think it's, it could never happen, it'll happen. And it'll happen first in, in Florida. I, I think that uh, as we read this book, both these books, I think, you know, and I'm hoping you're going to bring back Yancey again. <laughs> I don't think that far ahead, but I, I you know, I do like him. Uh, is how much you like this vast array of characters, and do these characters, do you know the whole cast before you start your book? When I before I start, I have a pretty good idea of the cast, much more so than the plot. Mm-hmm. I, I, I because I'm. I'm drawn, and I think that writers in general are, and readers, too, are drawn to characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't uh, – I mean, some writers are disciplined enough to start with a plot, a whole plot. I, I've never been that way. I like to sort of throw a collection of characters onto a stage and see what happens because that's kind of how, how life works, this great collision <laughs> of, of, of personalities. And so – I have a pretty good idea in my mind, but I don't know what they're going to do all the time. In this case, the, the the razor girl herself, Mary Mansfield, the one who's driving the car when this accident occurs and who's got the razor in her hand, um, I had an idea that, you know, uh, that she was going to be smart and sharp and funny, uh, even though she was engaging in a criminal activity, that people sometimes are charming in that. 
but I didn't know how f- how far where she, that would take her, and and she became one of those characters where the more she was on the page, she started surprising me with stuff, and I and I so I ended up uh, keeping her around. I, I don't know if this makes any sense, but she became more a part of the central plot than I had originally imagined because I I liked her and there was a great energy on the page when she was there and I don't know it doesn't always work out the way sometimes they disappoint you your characters do they do and um, where you think you've got you know you've got your index card and you know, oh this is going to be great and and by about chapter seven you you trying to figure out how now how do I get this one off stage how do I this is not working <laughs> out we've got to get rid of them I mean you know and if it was I was writing one of these hard bitten just a crime, you know, you have them killed off or hit by a bus or something, but I've always <laughs> got to think of some other, a little more elegant way to do it, but the, the, the effect is the same, is that if they're, they're boring me or annoying me, they're probably going to be annoying the readers, so I've got to change gears. I, I loved Mary. I thought she was a great character, and I felt the same way when I first met her. I thought, well, here's a character who looks like maybe a minor part of the stage, but the more she was around, the more I liked her. I'm He's got to be keeping her around. <laughs> right, and because I, I wanted her to sort of obviously uh, uh, sweep Yancey away, and he's he's on his other mission, and he and he also still has a, his um, girlfriend from Bad Monkey, who, but she's she's got to leave the country for a little bit, so there's an opportunity. But anyway, I think he goes in very wary and cautious, and I want the readers to kind of share that because she is kind of working for bad people, and she's mm-hmm. got just one part of the job, and that's she's a driver. And But as she says, she's a, she has this little razor's cam, and it just freezes. And, and she's sent out to crash into certain people who have gotten themselves in a jam and and in this case, the mafia wanted to speak to this one person, so they sent Mary out. And she, but she says to Yancey, "I'm not, uh, you know, I, I don't consider. But it's not just the. I'm not just a good driver." She says, "I'm. This is performance art." She says, <laughs> uh, "They only use me to crash into guys, and of course, because the guys are guys, and there's a pretty girl sitting there, and you're going. I mean, they're going to be. You know, the, their guard will be lowered, as it were. But so anyway, I. But I liked." The way she sort of handled Yancey and the way she handled all guys. She was smart, way smarter than the guys in the book. <laughs> I, I like Yancey's uh, job as a restaurant inspector. Uh, having worked at a restaurant I, in, in the past, I know what he might have seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, did you have to do any research or did you just make that up? Or No, no, no. I, I, I'm in Florida. I didn't go into the, the kitchens of bad restaurants you know I, I love to eat out I, but I, and I wouldn't want to spoil it by like uh, you know snooping around the kitchens but in Florida um, the, the, the restaurant inspections are posted online it's a public record so you can uh-huh. look up any restaurant you want to go to and look at the latest uh, series of inspections that were there and, and some of the inspectors write with um, agonizing detail about what they find. I mean, they're literally, I, I've got the, the form that they, their, their code book that they carry around with them. It's also available online. And they really do have to count things like mouse droppings and insect parts. And, I mean, it's not just to say, oh, yeah, there's something. I mean, they get very, very meticulous about it and I that's why I kind of sympathize with Hansi. I mean it was sort of like his police work I mean mm-hmm. it was sort of like CSI only with vermin uh, <laughs> you know and so and it, it is hard he always wants to do a good job and the best job uh, and, and so I and he, he this is a job he obviously doesn't want to stay and he wants to get his real detective badge back but in the meantime he gets these calls and he has to go 
check out and do these inspections. So it's kind of a, it gives me an opportunity to write some, you know, harrowing scenes for diners, but uh, <laughs> fun for me. Uh, there's a restaurant that itself is almost a character, the the Crab the Shack, where you had, oh, I yeah. think, one of my favorite lines. I read this, uh, many lines I read to my wife, and the, the available, the catch of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think one yeah. of the most brilliant lines I've read recently. Yeah, yeah. When they when you hear catch of the day, they're 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 referring to an infection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we've been places. Like, we've all been places like that. And uh, and this is a guy who insists on always trying to bribe Yancey because he's always knows when Yancey comes in the door, he's going to find something because there's stuff everywhere to find. So he's always trying to slip him a hundred dollar bill and give him money, and it never works. But they have this little ritual. Um, and yeah, that's one. Of, it's sort of his nemesis on the restaurant circuit. You know, because when he first got the job, gets the job from being a cop to being doing this, and he thinks it's no big deal. But in the first few months, he loses like 35 pounds. He can't eat anything. He's so <laughs> overwhelmed by the stuff that he's having to to document and enforce that he just. And now, by the time Razor Girl comes around, he's a little more hardened to it. He can eat again. He's got his own favorite restaurants, and they're all squeaky clean. And, you know, he's got his program back together. But it could be a shock going from, a, like, a regular day job to that to that kind of a thing. And um, But in this book, I give him a, 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 a new kind of uh, animal to deal with in, in the restaurants, and it's one that really does – live in the Florida Keys, and these the giant Gambian pouch rats, they're called. That, that was amazing. Yeah. You know, that's one of those things that I was reading this as an e-book. The first time I, <laughs> I, I saw that, I just kind of like highlighted that and said, go to web. And it just you showed saw me some terrifying <laughs> pictures. Well, they grow to nine pounds. If you can imagine what a nine-pound rat is, uh, looks like, or... And um, and and I had been reading about them for years in the Keys because they would have sightings. People would say they try to a guy. They were somebody, some genius got the idea that this would be a great animal to import for the pet trade in the United States. A nine-pound rat. <laughs> And as you can imagine, it didn't go over very big in the pet trade. And then in the midst of when they were allowing them to be imported, it was discovered they carry a horrible disease called monkeypox. I don't know why it's not rat pox, but it's called monkeypox. So the feds shut it down, so you can't bring any more of these pouch rats in from Gambia and Senegal and Marat, wherever they live. But by then, there was a guy down in the Lower Keys who had a little operation going because he was an optimist. He was really psyched and thought this was going to be a big deal. So he had a collection of these things that he'd been breeding, these Gambian pouch rats, and he just liked this, like the guys with the pythons. That He just said, well, screw it, and he let them go. And so they've been sort of wandering, and they get sighted. Every now and then you hear about a sight, and they try to get rid of them. They tried to track them down, and they couldn't. And so you know, we don't know how many are down there. They're not... It's not a galloping infestation or anything, but just the idea that people keep seeing them here and there was enough to make me want to put them in a novel. Have Yancey had to go head-to-head with one of them in a restaurant, you know? I mean, if a nine-pound rat is nothing to... You mean that? You've got your hands full. That's yeah. a, <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. That's a big rat. I mean, when they were bringing in for the pet trade, Rick, they were... They had little leashes. People put them on... These little leash, like the chihuahua. I saw a of them, yeah. They're walking this rat. <laughs> yeah. and, and overseas, they used them for um, mine detection. 
and, and to detect buried mines. They would, the rats apparently have a great nose, and they would turn them loose, and they train them to, to, to sense mines that were planted in the road. I mean, it, it's fascinating. It's one of the, it's, it's one of the, uh, the horrors that, that Google opens up all these with the touch of a finger. You can, you can see things that will make you sleep with the lights on for weeks if, you, uh, if you're not careful. <laughs> um, I was uh, in Bad Monkey. I one of the things I really loved was was the sailfish scam, yeah. and I, I think that is so interesting that uh, the way you weave all this stuff into the plot. I mean, uh, because as we read it, it seems both like as messy and real as human <laughs> life is, but it's. If you step back from it, this is some really finely woven stuff. Do you have to go back afterwards and, like, kind of uh, trim around the edges? I do a little bit. I have a great editor who helps me do that because I do get carried away. And and this, uh, you know, in this book I was inspired by, because in Florida, there's a guy in in this book who... um, who was in the beach renourishment business. It's a huge business in Florida and probably in California, too. When you, We have a lot of erosion during the storm seasons down there. And the beaches, which are already shrinking because of, of climate change, you know, the water level is rising. So with the storms, the beaches disappear, and they hire these companies to give you a new beach. And some of them do it by dredging right offshore and putting whatever they find up on the beach. And others, that um, we barged in quite a bit from the Bahamas. They would go to the Bahamas and get their beach. So I've got a, a guy, a scammer in the book, in Razor Girl, um, uh, who starts a company called Sedimental Journeys. Have, and have you uh, got that dot .com? I think somebody, if you haven't, you should get it because somebody will buy it from you for thousands <laughs> yeah. of dollars. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't. I should. But anyway, and so he, but his, and he starts getting his beach sand from dubious sources. And, and the beaches in, are, that he's putting down are not very good. And people are running from the beach with their feet bleeding because there's glass. There's all kinds of crap in there. So anyway, he does this to a, at a resort that happens to be owned by one of the mafia families. And they, it's bad for their business, and therefore it becomes bad for him. And they track him down uh, and pretty much say, if you don't give us a real wonderful new beach very soon, your, your, your life is going to end. And so, um, so he's in there. But yeah, the, I mean, there's so many things like that happening. I mean, the, the whole idea of being in that business—it's a—you—you it's, never run out of work because the beach you put down this year is going to be gone next year. That's nature. It's just erosion. So it's a great gig. But I, that stuff kind of fascinates me, and I work it in there, and then. You try to tighten it up, I, and I this book for I turned in the manuscript, and I probably I think we probably my editor and I working on it, we probably cut in a you know on a on a hundred let's say one hundred fifteen thousand words, we cut maybe four thousand words and just tighten it, and and he's good at sort of fine tuning and knowing when I've gone <laughs> a little, and it's not a it's not a, 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 a editing in the sense of you can't write that, it's it's just tight and keeping the pace going, which is very important when you're writing both suspense and humor. You have to, you know, especially with the newspaper background that I've got, I mean, you, you learn at a young age in the newspaper, you write fast, you grab the reader, you get them involved in the story as quickly as you can, boom, boom, boom. And so the pacing for me is very, very important. And so when, and in, in, in my editor's great about knowing when it, okay, that's slowing down a little bit or we can, we can speed this up, we can tighten this up, and that's what good editors do. It's just an amazing piece of work and you know uh one of the things that i thought 
one of my favorite all-time memories as a young man growing up back in the Stone Age was when National Lampoon put <laughs> the, a famous National Lampoon cover, which was uh, buy this magazine or we'll kill this puppy. Yeah. <laughs> That's very famous. Yeah, and there's a dog with a gun to its head. Yeah. That's the jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was back in, that was the day. And uh, you have your own uh, tribute to that. Well, I don't know. I usually, I'm usually fairly kind to dogs. There's been a couple of exceptions because I, I, I own some of them. One of the things that interests me is Fortean Tales. I don't know if you know. Charles Fort was a writer in 19... And wrote, wrote a book called Book of the Damned. He's the first guy to do keep his own X Files. So he has a whole following that still follows him, huh. the Fortians. And they that's where you'll find just a treasure trove of reports of any really weird thing that happens. But one of the things the Fortians have done is coined this term FUM, Fortian unit of measurement. A Fortian unit of measurement is something like a plastic island as big as Texas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. So whenever you hear that, and I think you you uh, go, you're you're definitely into the the fum. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want you want the you know your uh, the visual uh, image to be strong. So and sometimes um, this this culture serves it up sort of like a, a you know a slow pitch down the middle of the plate for those things. And I mean, especially you know we just. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> stuff that people, and you know, right now you have you mentioned you know the easy availability of googling everything, and and people have access in their pockets. They pull out their phone and they have access to stuff that they can check on, that they can look at. Yeah. And so, I think it's even more challenging for, for writers, whether you're doing satire or any kind of writing. Uh, the precision has to be there. The imagery has to be there. Because uh, for the authenticity and the believability of it, um, there were. I mean, I think if you're writing 50 years ago, you can get away if with just, you know, kind of winging it if you're not really mm-hmm. sure about something. Like I don't know anything about restaurant inspections, but I could have I could have made up something mm-hmm. ghastly and funny. But it turns out that the truth is much funnier if you get into it and you start reading the reports and you see what these guys put up with every day and what they're and then that makes it better the reporting which we have can do so easily now thanks to the internet to me it means that there's no excuse for any writer to be so lazy as to get something wrong you know i mean by wrong Mm -hmm. i mean just completely off the top of your head wrong because if it rings on true in just one sentence or one part of a chapter, you know, it, it can it really does affect how the reader continues from that point if he catches you doing right. something. Well, I think too, I didn't consider this till just now, but you take a great deal of care um, in terms of blocking your scenes and making sure that every scene is really visually rendered into the reader's brain, so that when people are moving <laughs> around on the street or people are are on different properties and trying to look at the sunset through a yeah. towering mansion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, str- I struggle with that. Right? I mean, I do the choreography of certain scenes because some, yeah. of, some of them are it's sort brilliant. of... brilliant. Some of them are sort of naturally cinematic and, and mm-hmm. you know, they come easy to you. Others are more complicated and, mm. and, and more subtle. And, and I admire writers that can, you know, take a, a scene of, you know, a family 
eating an uncomfortable dinner together and write 75 pages of that. But that's not, I know that's not me and that's not what I do best because I, I, things, a lot of stuff is happening in my books. So you mm-hmm. do have to, and I do try to pay attention to the, uh, to, to um, those kinds of details. But it drives me nuts because, you know, I can, I can read a, a part of a chapter, you know, I've, 25 or 30 times, and every time I look at it, I'm tweaking something. Mm. Uh, you know, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, is I'm, just, a I'm just point seeing. Where you some... Tell yourself to stop. <laughs> well, there's a point where the editor tells you it's time to stop. We need to publish the book. You need to send it in now. Um, but yeah, but I think again, the back, the newspaper background is excellent about it. But because you're used to writing on deadlines, mm. that's what you do. You, there's no, you don't have any slack or flexibility if you. You know, if you grew up in, in a newsroom the way I did, I mean, you just, you just, we need it by five, and we need this many words by five o'clock. So the discipline of being able to say, okay, this is as good as I'm going to get it by five <laughs> o'clock. I'm not going to get it any better than this. Now, you obviously, with a novel, you have much more, much more time, but it's still the same principle. There comes a point you've got to let go. And then, and I'm sure you've talked to other writers that will tell you the same thing. There's also a point at which, Every time you read it and start tweaking again, it you you take some of the energy out of it. Mm-hmm. You almost tweak it uh, in, into a slackened state, and you lose some of what you had when you first the very first take, as it were. Yeah, you uh, want that juice. Yeah, and so it's very important at that point to have an editor or someone looking over your shoulder, going, "Just leave it be. It, it's that's that sentence works. There's nothing else you can do to that sentence." And <laughs> but that's what you you do. You end up waking them up in the middle of the night, saying, "Is that was that the right adjective? Did that work? Did that have the right rhythm for that sentence?" Mm. I know it sounds a little bit you know psychotic, but that's what you do. You worry about everything from punctuation to just the whole flow. And mm-hmm. if you're not doing that. It, it shows in your right. The whole trick is to make it look effortless, to make it flow in a way that you're, nobody stops and gets hung up on it. Oh, absolutely. You just read these books in a heartbeat, and they seem like. And what's interesting to me is as you read them, you might be tempted to think, oh, this is just, you know, so easy to read. It must be really easy to write. And then when you, as I say, when you step back, you realize, wow, just how intricate it is uh, for example there's a you know the famous checkoff line when there's a gun on the wall in the first act that gun's going to come down somewhere and yeah and your world it's a taser so yeah it's, it's whatever <laughs> but you're right there's those are certain hard and fast rules of writing and you uh, you know it, it is if you care about it and you want each book to get better and i think every writer wants that then it you know the suffering is is just taken for granted that's what you've got to do when when it becomes easy, it's probably the, the easier it gets. It's not that means it's not getting any better mm. a, as a writer. I mean, it's not supposed to be easy. It's mm. supposed to be you're supposed to be miserable, <laughs> and uh, and I don't you know. I, I, and I, I mean, I've talked to there's some you know even I think if you spoke to Dave Barry or people that are incredibly funny writers, they don't. When you're writing a line that something inside of you tells you it's funny, it's working. This this section or this part is going to work, and that's a funny way to write that. But you're you're not laughing. You're not sitting at your keyboard laughing. Ha ha ha! That's great. Internally, you're figuring out that it works, and and there may be some part of you is smiling on the inside, but on the outside, you look like you're writing a funeral notice. I mean, because <laughs> it's it's hard damn work. I I can tell it, it shows in the quality. Now, uh, one of the things I think you do extremely well is to use language that can't be used on the radio. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and you, it's a, there's a lot of salty language in this yeah, book. Yeah. It's extremely entertaining, and it comes at just the right clip so that whenever <laughs> we encounter it, it makes us laugh. And I just think, man, that's the kind of timing. That's like musical timing almost. <laughs> well, you, I think uh, we live in an era of sort of uh, creative profanity, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's good. It can have a, almost a poetic... Uh, effect if it's used in the right line in the right space at the right moment I think it get you it, you can get it gets tedious if every other word is you know an f-bomb but get and if it comes out of a certain character at a certain moment and it's just perfect it's fine but yeah. it, it's like any other you know choice you make as a writer okay when and how do you drop this one in there and uh, but you know it's the sort of thing when my mom was alive I used to you know, I used to just live in dread. I said, oh, my God. Could, you know, I'd write something. I knew it was funny, and I knew I liked that word, but I said, wow, Mom sees that. Oh, my God, I'm going to be in big trouble. One of the real challenges of a satirist these days is staying ahead of reality. <laughs> Pretty hard. <laughs> it's, it's a tough gig these days, isn't no, it? No, and it's, dep- I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to de- be depressed about what's happening politically in the country mm-hmm. right now. But from the point of view of a, a satirical writer, you're, it's depressing because how do you, as I said, how do you improve upon it if you're writing satire or making fun of it? You know, I have my my newspaper column can be sort of therapeutic and I can have fun and go nuts with that. But if you're writing long term, you know how long it takes to do a book and then you're done. There's a, there's a you know, it might be nine months or a year before it's actually out in print. And a lot can happen in that time as we as we've seen. So. Um, and, you know, you look at the, what the, what you watch on the news tonight and, and the whole Trump thing, for example, is is something like Tom Wolf would have invented. It's like, you know, bonfire of the vanities, XXL, <laughs> you know, uh, or Vonnegut or something. Really, truly. Yeah. No, I, that's what I uh, – long ago I interviewed a science fiction writer named uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, and uh-huh. he, he told me, he said, Rick – we're living in a bad science fiction novel, which is actually true. This is uh, there's a novel called Bug Jack Baron by Norman Spinrad from the 1970s about uh, a vitriolic radio DJ at the time who encounters this, who creates a something really weird, a telephone call-in show, with, and becomes a political figure mm-hmm. and it's that's the novel we're we're in right now <laughs> oh that is the novel where it's just reality tv i mean that's it's all it, it that part of it is frightening i mean it, if it's also obviously terrific material if you're whether you're a journalist or a novelist and you and you're in the business of writing humor but as a citizen and as a parent and as somebody who cares about where this country is going it's sobering and a little bit frightening, and uh, you, you know you watch, and each day is you know something new. Uh, but you know it's. I also think it's important to stay. And I don't want to use the word hopeful, but you you have to have some faith mm. uh, in 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 time and in the American people, and and that that characters who are larger than life tend not to, you know they. they they tend to be brought down to to the to the you know where they ought to be after a while. I mean, they hang themselves with their own words, their own behavior, and and uh, you, you know you just let it take its course. I mean, I, I there are a lot of people who are looking at already looking at 
real estate in the Bahamas or Canada <laughs> in the event of a Trump presidency. But I'm not quite there yet. I think uh, you know the next couple of months will be interesting. But you gotta you gotta stay sharp, and you can't you know turn your back on it. Even though some days you really sit there with the mute button. If you got the remote control in your hand, everybody listening to this will knows that this is true. Where you just you had enough. Um, it, it doesn't matter who you support. Either side, you had enough. I would rather watch a, a cooking show mm-hmm. than watch, you know, uh, some of the another, you know, political bombshell scrolling across the bottom of CNN. You know, give yeah, me a we break. Actually ha- we have a, actually have a little piece of cardboard that we put across the bottom of the screen so we can't see any. Can, yeah, yeah. Let's see. <laughs> no, there you go. It's be the same principle. It's like. You know, what did he say today? What did she say today? Okay, next case, move on. I don't want to know. Now, you know, you talked about the delays in uh, writing a book, and it strikes me that what you're doing is like as you write, you're kind of like a hunter who has to lead with the gun mm-hmm. to hit that duck. A little so bit. So you have to, like, write out into a future that you can't necessarily see. No, you can't. and that's But that's been, I think, the challenge of of satirists from the beginning mm. is you know some of them will write books set in the future uh-huh. and and others if you're writing though in like i said the here and now today's headlines it's a little riskier because um you can by the time the book actually comes out get eclipsed by something really outrageous that's happened and and in this stage and age when it happens it's instantly known because of the internet. It isn't something we hear about later. You hear about it within hours of it happening. And it's if, if uh, you know, whether it's a celebrity or a politician or whatever it is. And so, you know, you're dealing with that 24-hour news cycle and, and you're, you know, so, yeah, it's a challenge and you never know. I mean, there's there are things that I, you know, I, I, I wrote a book about a, you know, a plastic surgeon called, it was called, the book was called Skin Tight years ago, and I just invented what I thought was the world's worst, sleaziest plastic surgeon, and, and working on South Beach down in Miami, I just had him doing all this incredibly horrific stuff, and it was, part of it was based on some reporting I'd done it for the Herald with, a, with an investigations team about bad doctors and th- who are allowed to continue practicing after hurting people, and just, and then, and then part of it, I just took that and what I thought was ratcheted it up to some degree of, uh, you know, malfeasance that would never, ever come to pass. And after the book came out, I started, you know, noticing real life. I mean, things started happening that were more outrageous um, than than I, I could have ever put into that book. I mean, the, 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 the monster that I created was nothing compared to some of the bad actors that turned up to do plastic <laughs> surgery in Miami Beach. And I remember feeling a little deflated thinking... <laughs> I'd read some horrible headline. I thought, man, why didn't I think of that for the book? I said, this, <laughs> I, you know, why, why didn't I think of that scene? Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty great uh, image for all, all of your readers. You know, I, I think, too, one of the things that's nice in this book is the way you can uh, let that subject will naturally surface. I mean, climate change surfaces yeah. in a way that's both funny yet you think, well, yeah, it sounds funny here. I'm enjoying this book. <laughs> but no, but that's sort of the point, I think, of satire. I mean, and mm-hmm. any, any, is to sort of get, you want to, in my case, I want people to laugh. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, nothing is, is a bigger high than seeing, what, seeing somebody in the airport sitting there laughing while they're reading one of your books. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. 
Um, but at the same time, you obviously want them to be laughing for the right reasons. You want them to be in on it. Mm. And th that's the trick with satire. It isn't just slapstick. It's, you know, some of the lines that you're slipping in there are, you know, they have an edge to them. And you want people to be uh, right on the same wavelength with you. And, um, and I'm sure some readers are and some aren't. But in your heart, you want to believe they're all getting it. And this is why you wrote it. I mean, satire has a target. I mean, it's it's... That's what it. It's what it's all about. You're and you're lampooning the culture, whether it's politics, whether it's the media, whatever it happens to be. That's you. You go in with you know fully loaded. You do get to the media too with a vampire movie. <laughs> it's a swill. Yes, that we 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 do get the triumph of the swill. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean having had good experiences and then not great experiences with Hollywood but knowing how it works knowing how the pro how the process works it would the, in Razor Girl it was not hard to conceive of a show like Bayou Brethren that was trying to cash in on Duck Dynasty and put their get their own rednecks up on the big screen as fast as they could because it's all about trends in Hollywood it's all about what's trending what's hot these shows are hot. And, you know, they're only so many, for instance, there, I'm sure there's a knockoffs of the Kardashians that they're scouring around for someone who looks and acts, you know, a, 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 a big dysfunctional glamour family like the Kardashians. Well, it's the same with all these other cult shows that sprang up. So I thought it didn't seem to me far-fetched that they would hire a bunch of, you know, in the, in the book, they were, I had them, they weren't real regnants. They were, you know, four brothers from Wisconsin who had an accordion band, and they just they looked like rednecks, so they got the part. And then they had to be taught kind of how to be rednecks. They had to be kind of trained for the show. That's not that far-fetched the way it works in Hollywood, believe me. <laughs> I've been speaking with Carl Hyacin. His new novel is Razor Girl. Thank you for joining me, Carl. Oh, thanks again for having me. It was great. Great talking to you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.